following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, September 3rd at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Last night, before I went to bed, I decided to turn on the television because I wanted to see if I could catch a few minutes of Roger Federer's match in the evening session of the U.S. Open last night. And yep, see, somebody's a tennis fan. If you're a tennis fan, you know that it did not come on when it was scheduled to come on. And that happens all the time at the U.S. Open because matches get delayed. And so when I turned it on, it wasn't on. So the news, the the, the television network was having to fill all the time with B-roll footage of things. So they were showing us different things of New York and different players out of New York, different things. And as they were showing us all this B-roll footage, and I was trying to see if I could wait long enough to see the match to start before I went to bed, they showed something of New York that caught my eye and then reminded me of the text that we're in this morning. So, so here it is. This B-roll footage came and this camera began to zoom in on Times Square. And on the corner of the street in Times Square, there had to be like 30 to, to 50 people gathered around this guy running the shell game on the corner of a street in Times Square. Have you ever seen someone run a shell game in a city? There's a box or a table usually on the sidewalk and on top of that box or on top of that table, they've either got three large walnut shells or maybe three different matchboxes. And what they do is try to gather a crowd and get people to place bets. And the bet is this. If I put a ball underneath this shell and begin to move all these shells around, do you think you can remember which shell it's under when I stop? If you're right, you win. If you're wrong, you lose. And they gather a crowd and people start yelling and people start placing bets. Well, they showed that. And if you've ever seen that happen or you've ever played that game or you've ever come across it, you realize that it's the ultimate game of distraction. It's the ultimate sleight of hand for a street street magician to do. You see, because what they do is they get you to focus on the shells and to focus on the ball that you see go under the shell. And they begin to move it around, constantly telling you, look at the ball, look at the shell. And sometimes when they move it around, they'll turn the shells over and give you a glimpse of the ball while it's moving around. And they get you to focus on that ball and focus on that shell and not focus on their hands. Because one of the guys that runs the shell game, who's put a good 100 plus hours into this, knows that when he lifts that shell at some point along the way, letting you see things, he's going to palm that ball that's underneath it. That ball, that pee, that marble, whatever they use, it goes in his hand. So that when he stops moving those things around and you choose a shell, wrong And then if he's really good, he gets you to double down on your bet. There's two shells left, 50% chance. Think you can do it? All along, it's in his hand. So when he turns that next shell over and it's empty, when he goes to turn the third shell over, he palms the ball back under the shell, and there it is. And you're out five, 10, 15, 20 dollars. Everybody's laughing, everybody's having a good time, and you move on. And they showed this on on the TV last night, and I saw them doing it, and I began to think about what we were doing this morning because if you and I aren't careful... And I was reminded of this in the text. Satan plays a a similar kind of spiritual shell game on the church. Getting you and I to focus on things that are not meant to be our primary focus. Getting us easily distracted from that which is to be our primary intention and primary hope. He can get our focus misplaced. And the losses to us and the losses to the church are far more consequential than 5 or 10 or $20 worth of vacation money. Let me try to put it this way. I was trying to think of a more tangible way to, to communicate it. 
If I were to say Starbucks and ask you what came to mind, what would you say? Coffee. That's easy, right? Watching TV last night, watching the sponsorships for the U.S. Open. If I were to say Rolex, watches. But it would take the rest of the time that we have together this morning if I were to say, what comes to your mind when I say the church? Because the answers would be varied. Some wouldn't have an answer at all. Friends, this text that Paul is giving us this morning, this text is about what is meant to be our main thing. The churches in Galatia were falling prey to this kind of spiritual shell game. And Paul was torn up because of it. It's an extremely personal text to him. It's an extremely personal text to us. You can hear it in his words. Brothers, family, I entreat you. I'm I'm pleading with you. I'm in the anguish of childbirth over you. I'm perplexed about you. The love that Paul has for God's people is causing this emotion to rise up in him. And in this plea that Paul gives to the churches, he gives us one of the clearest visions of God's intention for our life. Paul talks about what is meant to be our one main thing. Paul points the eyes of our heart, points our focus, points our attention, points our hearts back to God's greatest intention for us now, what we're meant to be about. Paul takes us back to what's meant to be our deepest longing, our deepest desire. And to do that, Paul draws on the backstory of his relationship with these churches. Listen to this. Verse 13, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. Do you realize when Paul went to preach the gospel to these churches, they weren't on his agenda? The region of Galatia was not on Paul's agenda to go and preach the gospel. Paul preached the gospel to them because he was suffering from something and had to stop. He was stuck. God used his suffering, God used his bodily ailment as an opportunity to see the gospel of grace preached to those that were in darkness, those that were enslaved to gods that were not gods. And while he did that, while he was there, these men, these women, these families of these churches in Galatia, they didn't allow the stigma of receiving someone like Paul to stand in the way of them receiving God's word and and receiving God's messenger. Look at verse 14. Paul said, And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. We don't know what exactly was wrong with Paul. We don't know if if he had an eye issue, something was wrong with his eyes, because later he says that they loved him so much, their relationship was so deep, if he would have asked them, they would have gouged out their own eyes for him. We don't know if that's literal or if he's speaking of hyperbole there, but we do know whatever was wrong with Paul, it was a trial to them in one of two ways or both. You see, in that day, people believed that if you were suffering from some kind of bodily ailment like Paul must have been suffering from, then you were living under the displeasure of the gods. 
So in the region of Galatia, for them to be associated with Paul, to receive Paul, means that they were receiving in the eyes of everyone else around them someone who the gods were not happy with. And they didn't let that stand in their way. They received Paul, and they received the words of God through Paul. But not only that, Paul's illness, Paul's bodily illness, it may have required them to actually physically take care of him. He may have been some kind of burden upon them, having to feed him, having to clothe him, having to care for whatever may have been wrong with him. Either way, the relationship that was formed through the grace of God and the work of the gospel in their heart created a bond so deep that Paul says they would have done anything for him if he'd asked. They would have gouged out their eyes for him if he needed it to happen. You see, the gospel was preached to a people who were in darkness to the glory of God, strangers to his promises, enslaved to patterns and spirits of this world. And through the preaching of the gospel, through this suffering of Paul that caused him to stop, a whole region of people had been set free. And this relationship formed. But that was back then. When Paul's writing this letter, something has changed. Verse 20, Paul says, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I'm perplexed about you. In another place, he says they're treating them as though he's their enemy. I mean, how could the Galatians exchange the glorious inheritance in Christ that they had received again for the chains and bondages of legalism to the law? It's perplexing to Paul. He's watching it happen before his eyes because, as Paul mentions, the churches are giving Paul two very clear indicators that this is indeed the thing that's happening amongst them, that they are again returning to a relationship with God based upon their performance for him rather than the sufficiency of the sacrifice of his son for them. There's two very clear signs for Paul that these churches are no longer walking in step with the truth of the gospel. And the signs that they give to Paul are as applicable to us now as they were back then. The first one is simply this. When you leave the grace of God and the sufficiency of the sacrifice of his son for you and return again to the bonds of legalism, you develop an allergy to the truth about who you really are. You become allergic to the truth, so to speak. You would much rather have your ears tickled by good things said about you than have the word of God expose the reality of what's going on in your heart. Look at what Paul says in verse 16. Have I then become your enemy? The one who at one time was cared for by you, regardless of whatever it meant to those around you for you to love me, for you to care for me. The relationship had grown so strong you would have done anything for me. Have I now become your enemy? Because I continue to tell you the truth. You see, the reality of it is every single one of us in here has various blind spots in our life, various blind spots in our hearts. Maybe it's the way we're thinking about viewing or operating in our marriage in different relationships. Maybe it's the way we're viewing or operating in our jobs, in our work. But there are things about ourselves that we would just rather not hear. There are things about ourselves that we would just rather not look at. There are things about ourselves we would just rather not deal with. And the reality of it is the continued preaching and teaching and sharing of God's word with one another is going to expose those things. God's word is going to bring those things progressively out into the light. God will use not only the preaching of his word to do that, he'll use the sharing of his word amongst his people to do it. And here's what's going to happen. 
It's going to cut down to deep parts of your heart that you would rather it leave alone. It's going to shine a very bright light into parts of your heart that you wish could remain hidden. And here's the thing. God is not doing that to harm you. God is not doing that to shame you. God is doing that to heal you. He's doing that to increasingly set you free. He's doing that to increasingly transform you. But what happens when you begin to return back to a relationship with him that's based on how well you perform for him, you're returning back to that legalistic bond and and chain that you wrap around yourself, you've got to keep those things hidden. They don't bode well for you if your performance is the foundation of your relationship with God. What happens is an allergy begins to develop in your heart towards the truth about who you really are. This is what was going on in these churches They would much rather have their ears tickled about good things and happy things and nice things about themselves and their world. And that's what was going on. We'll see it in a minute. Teachers had come in and begun to flatter them. And when you find yourself in that situation, friends, it's a warning sign. How do you respond to the truth of your sin, to the exposure of your blind spots through the word of God? Do you immediately, reflexively begin to think that someone's hurting you? Someone's trying to shame you? Someone's trying to judge you? Or do you see God's grace in exposing it as an act of his mercy to heal you? Friends, Paul was becoming their enemy because they would rather have their ears tickled than come face to face with the truth of what's going on in their heart. But it's not only that. That's not the only sign. The other sign, we've mentioned it before in the series, is a lack of real and deep and abiding joy. You see it in verse 15. Paul says, what then has become of your blessedness? Some of your translations will say, what has become of your joy? That's because that word could be translated either way. And here's what we need to understand real quick about this. Happiness and joy in the Bible are two very different things. Happiness is an emotional state that can fluctuate up and down based upon our physical or material or emotional well-being. That's happiness. Joy in the Bible is always, Old Testament and New Testament, always connected to the saving acts of God. It's grounded in the comfort and the confidence of knowing that by the act of God and grace of God, our sins are forgiven and our standing before him is secure. That Jesus died for our sins and was raised for our justification. Joy is grounded in the redemptive work of God. Happiness is based upon our personal, mental, emotional, or material well-being. Two very different things. There is a lack of deep and abiding joy when you and I return again to the chains and slavery of performance-based religion, performance-based relationship with God. Why? Because we can never again know if we've done enough. Legalism makes this exchange by distracting you. It distracts you. And in the distraction, you exchange the joy of knowing your sins are forgiven. That God delights in you as he delights in his son. And you exchange it for anxiety and hopelessness. Because ultimately, you never know if you've measured up. Paul sees these two things happening in the churches in Galatia. An allergy to the truth and a loss of joy. 
and he's undone out of love for them. What caused it? What had happened? What had happened was they had become victims of a spiritual shell game. Verse 17, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you make much of them. See, these teachers had come in, and they had begun to flatter the churches and make much of the churches and woo the churches. That's what that word means. It means a significant intentionality towards someone to draw them away from something or someone and to yourself. It's used in literature of the day of the seduction of someone away from their husband or their wife. They came in to seduce you, to make much of you, to woo you for no good purpose but for you to make much of them. They came in to draw you away from the sure and certain confidence and freedom that comes from the gospel over to a way and pattern of of religion that causes you to look at them and go, how great are they because they can do it. Let me strive to be like them. And away from a confidence in what God has simply done for you through his son. Paul says it's no good purpose. It's that you make much of them. That's it. In fact, in chapter six, we'll get there later in the series, Paul says it's these people It's people like this that have come in who want to make a good showing in the flesh who force you to be circumcised. Why do they do it? They want to look good. They want other people to like them. They want a particular reputation in the religious community. They want a good showing in the flesh and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. You hear that? They want to move the grounds of justification so that they don't find themselves suffering persecution for being identified with Christ and his people. We want to make justification over here, what we're doing and how we're doing it. That way, you can look at me and go, how great is he? I want to be like him. And I can look at everyone else and go, look how well we're doing and all these people who want to be like us. That's what's happening. Paul says they want to shut you out. They want to shut you out from the freedom Shut you out from the joy. Shut you, shut you out from the confidence that you have in what God's done for you. Shut you out from me so that you can make much of them. Make much of their high religious ways. They want you to boast about them. And then they'll turn around and tell everybody else to look at them because of you. Friends, this is so dangerous. It's so toxic. It's a shifting of the grounds of justification and standing before God. It happens even today inside the church. That's what's so deadly about what's going on in here. You see these people have come in and they have now divided the church against itself. Now those who were Gentiles who have come to faith in Christ are being separated from those who were Jewish who came to faith in Christ because they're not doing the same things that people are saying they're supposed to do. Now the church is divided from the inside. It happens today all the time. If you're really serious about God, this is what you do. If you're really serious about God, this is what you're for. If you're really serious about God, this is what you're against. Those who are over here against this with me are better than those who are over here who aren't against this with me. It's dividing the church from the inside out. It's changing the grounds of justification because what happens if we're not careful, we begin to believe that we're right before God and have earned some kind of favor because of what we're doing or what we're not doing, what we're against or what we're for. It's deadly and it's dangerous There was a false gospel that was being peddled, a fake justification. One writer, one commentator was trying to think about this, and he said, no church, no church, 
then or now, is more immature than a legalistic church. No church is more immature than a legalistic church, one who develops its own lists about what can be worn, what can be seen, what can be celebrated, all these varied things that get put out from the churches. All of them have nothing to do with what Scripture provides. All they do, he says, is ensnare. This is what was happening to God's people. And it got Paul so worked up. These false teachers, they were wooing God's people away from the freedom and joy that was theirs. The fullness of life that God had for them in his son. That's ultimately the danger of legalism. It robs you of the fullness of life that God has for you in his son. It drives you to settle for that which is less than all that God wants or has for you. It drives you to settle for chains. One of my heroes in the pastoral ministry, Ray Ortland, you hear me talk about him all the time. He said something in a sermon one time about a different text that I was thinking about when I was going through this text. I had to go figure out where it was and find it, but he was talking about this reality in the church, this tendency to slide back into these kind of chains and how easy it is for us to find ourselves in that position sometimes and not even realize it. And this is what he said to his congregation. I want you to hear this because I think it's applicable to all of God's people. He said, I want to say to anyone who's gathered together this morning with God's people. If you think you're here to enlighten the rest of us about your pet emphasis or your amazing experience, if your agenda here is to enlighten us as to what we should be about, what we should be for, what we should be against, if if you've got that figured out and it's your job to enlighten the rest of us, or if you need drama or you need conflict to feel fully alive, If that's you, then the gathering of God's people may not be for you. The church is for wounded sinners who want to heal through the gospel without feeling the pressure of weird people. I love that. There's a tendency when we fall prey to this game, this shell game of distraction, to reorient the agenda that God has for his people to redefine the intention that God has for his people. And when that happens, the fullness of life offered by that kind of legalism is nothing less than bondage and enslavement and a loss of joy. But Paul won't stand for it. We can't stand for it. Because the reality is the gospel offers a fullness of life that is radically different. Look at verse 19. Paul said, My little children, those for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Verse 19 tells us what God wants for every single one of us. Here's the agenda, right? You come in with an agenda. You think you know what we should be doing, what we should not be doing, what we should be saying, what we should not be saying, how we should do it, all those things. Here's the agenda. Are you ready? Christ formed in you. Verse 19 defines the intentionality that you and I are meant to have with each other. Christ formed in you. Verse 19 defines the deepest longing that God has placed in the heart of every single person here. Christ formed in me. 
This is the one thing that we're meant to be about. Starbucks can keep making coffee. Rolex can keep making watches. Our agenda and our greatest longing and intention is Christ formed in you. You see, legalism seeks to form you into the image and likeness of someone else. To have you conform to an external pattern of religion and behavior. It's from the outside in, hoping that by doing all that, something on the inside will change. The gospel is altogether different. It's the promise and the hope of Christ formed in you. And I want you to see the implications of those four words. Very specific words that have tremendous implications. The first thing we see about this intention of God for us is that it's a process. It's not instantaneous. It takes time. You find that in that word that Paul uses there, formed. The word that we translate formed in the original language shares the same root for the word that we have, metamorphosis. In fact, if you go look at how that word was used in Paul's day in the literature of the time, it wasn't so much used the way that Paul used it to talk about caterpillars and butterflies. It was used to talk about the process of a baby in a mother's womb growing to the point of being a full-grown child. It was a process of becoming what you've been made to be. Paul says this process of Christ being formed in you, it takes time. It's not instantaneous. It's not overnight. There's patience involved with this. This is what theologians call sanctification. See, the first half of this entire letter, Paul has been arguing and reminding and continuing to build the case for justification. How we stand forgiven and right before God by grace through faith in Christ alone. Justified, forgiven, before Christ, now and forever. But now Paul moves on to what theologians call sanctification. And you've got to catch the difference. And I love the way the New City Catechism defines the difference. If you've never looked at the New City Catechism, it's a great teaching tool to think about the, the truths and the doctrines of the Christian faith. But in question 32, the Catechism asks this, what do justification and sanctification mean? It's a great question. What do they mean? And the answer is this, justification means our declared righteousness before God made possible by Christ's death and resurrection for us. That's the first half of the book of Galatians. Sanctification means our gradual, growing righteousness made possible by the Spirit's work in us. This is a process, Paul is saying. It's the process of God's Spirit in you, forming in you the image and likeness of Christ, transforming you ultimately into what you are meant to be. It's not overnight. It's a process that takes patience. And it's a process of being conformed from the inside out into the image of Christ. It's not a process of you conforming to outward rules. It doesn't work from the outside in. That's where the emphasis on Christ comes into play in these four words. It's Christ formed in you, not you conforming to a pattern, hopefully becoming like him. Peter, in writing his letter to the church, 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter would say it like this. It's like you and I becoming partakers of the divine nature. What he means is that increasingly, God's personality begins showing up in your personality. 
God's priorities start to become your priorities. Your heart begins to beat with his priorities. Your personality begins to reflect his personality. The glory of his son is being conformed and transformed in you. You're becoming increasingly like him, and it's seen. It's seen in how you think. It's seen in how you speak. It's seen in how you live. It's happening from the inside out. No one has said this better for me than Brian Chappell. Brian Chappell is a pastor in St. Louis, president of a seminary in St. Louis, and he wrote the foreword for a book on preaching written by someone else. And in the foreword, he talked about this in a way that made this so clear to me years ago that I printed it out and I keep it in my office. Chappell said this. He said, you and I have been redeemed to reflect our Savior. We're called to be mirrors of his glory by his grace. So he's thinking image like a verb. We're called to image our creator, image our savior, reflect in how we think and how we speak and how we live, his personality and his priorities. Now, listen to how he describes it. This was so helpful for me. He said, not only does this mean that grace leads us to reflect Christ's holiness. That's where we tend to talk about it. When we tend to think about being transformed in the image and likeness of Christ, we tend to think holiness and morality, right? He says it's much bigger than that. This is Christ being formed in you, the fullness of Christ being formed in you. So he goes on to say this, it does not mean that grace leads us only to reflect Christ's holiness, but grace motivates us and enables us to reflect Christ's mercy for the poor, Christ's care for creation, Christ's zeal for justice, Christ's delight in beauty, Christ's love for the unlovely, Christ dignifying all kinds of work that apply his gifts, Christ's treasuring of chastity outside of marriage, Christ's blessing of fidelity inside of marriage, Christ's tenderness towards the least of these, and Christ's love for the lost who have yet to find their home in him. It's the fullness of Christ being formed in you. And what happens in this shell game of distraction that we see happening in the churches there and happening in the churches now is we take one of these things and we move them out here and make them the grounds of our justification before God because we see it happening in our lives and we look at everyone else and say, if you're going to be serious and you'll do this like me. And the grounds for our justification before God have always been Christ's death and resurrection in our place for our sin, not our response to that. Friends, this is the work of God's Spirit forming you from the inside out progressively into the image and likeness of His Son. It's Christ formed inside. And Paul's very clear that last word, though. It's Christ formed inside you. Technically, a better translation would be Christ formed inside y'all. Not you guys. <laughs> y'all. This is a plural you. There is a distinct individual reality to sanctification. God, the Holy Spirit, is working in you for all of who, by the grace of God, have placed their faith in the person and work of Christ, working inside you to increasingly form the beauty and the glory of Christ in you, for your personality to reflect his, for his priorities to be yours. He is working in you, but there's also a collective reality to this. 
Together, God intends for us as his people to embody, to reflect, to image, to mirror, like a verb, the priorities and the heartbeat of our King and Savior. This is what his intention is for us. It's what his intention is for you, singular, that his Son be increasingly formed in you. It's what his intention is for us, collective, that his Son be increasingly formed in us. It's meant to be your deepest desire and longing that Christ is formed in me. Friends, this is the one thing that we do as a church. This is the intention, this is the motive, this is the desire, this is the longing. Christ formed in you. Everything that we do is meant to be a means towards this end. And you can be honest about the reality that it's hard sometimes. Paul's relationship with the Galatians was difficult sometimes. In the beginning, he had a bodily ailment that required them to put apart, put aside what people may think about them for caring for Paul and dealing with the ramifications of that. But now on the other side of this whole thing, there's a difficulty there because Paul's having to remind them they're being wooed away by something that's not true. But here's the thing. Paul's intention differs from that of the Judaizers because his agenda is the same as God's. He wants Christ formed in them. The Judaizers, legalism, wants you formed in someone else's image. Paul's intent is that God's highest intention for his people is for his son to be formed in them. Friends, is God's intention for you. Christ formed in you. Is that your greatest desire for yourself? Is that your longing? That Christ will be formed in you? Is God's intention for us, for his people, that our intentionality would be together that Christ is formed in us? Is that your intention with one another? Is that your desire for one another? Is that your longing for one another? Do you want to see Christ formed in those you love? Do you want to see Christ formed in those around you? If you're anything like me, you have to wrestle with the reality of lesser desires that show themselves all the time. When all I want from my kids is for them not to embarrass me. When all I want from my kids is for them to be quiet and do something else in another room so that I can do what I want to do and think I deserve. We settle for lesser desires, lesser things. Friends, do we want Christ formed in us? Do I want Christ formed in you? It's okay to have a zeal and an intentionality towards that. In fact, that's what God wants for us. That's what Paul says there, I think it's in verse 18, when he said it's good to be made much of for a good purpose. You see, it's good to have this intentionality towards someone, to relate to someone, to draw together with someone for a good purpose. The good purpose being seeing Christ formed in them and Christ formed in you. That's good. Do we have an intentionality towards that together? That's meant to be the highest intention that we should have for each other. That Christ is increasingly formed in you that Christ is increasingly formed in me, that Christ is increasingly formed in us. 
It's our one thing. It's our one thing. Friends, listen to Paul this morning. Verse 12, Paul says, Brothers, family, I entreat you. I'm pleading with you. Become as I am. No, not not dress like me, not eat where I eat, not live where I live, not read the books I read, not do this, not become as I am. How was Paul? Paul was free. I, I, I had become like you are. I, I had lived in the bondage of that kind of performance religion. I've been there. Become as I am. Do you realize the first command in this entire letter, we haven't come across a command yet. The first command in this entire letter is for you and I to let go of the religion that binds us. It's to let go of the chains that we wrap around ourselves. It's to let go of pseudo-justifications and pseudo-realities. It's to let go of that which does not work. Paul's talking to a people that have been caught in the distraction. They've made secondary things main things and begun to believe that their relationship before God is based on how well they perform for him. And Paul is saying, let it go. Turn away from it. Repent of it. Become as I am. Free. Let go. Rest in the fullness of all that God is for you in his son and all that God has done for you in his son. Rest in the fullness of Christ. And as you rest in the fullness of Christ and you behold the glory of God in the face of his son, that is God's pattern for forming his son in you. Beholding his glory in the face of Christ is the way that God continues to form the image of Christ in you. We get the privilege of helping one another do that very thing. We get the privilege of helping one another behold, gaze, look, fix our eyes upon the glory of God in Christ because it's as we do that that God continues by his spirit to turn us into increasingly likenesses of his son. This is what Paul would tell the church in Corinth. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Friends, this is God's highest intention for his people. It's meant to be our highest intention for one another. God created us to long for him. He created us to have the deepest and most abiding longing in our heart to be for him and for him to be formed in us. Friends, may we never settle for anything less than what God intends for us to long for the most. And may we never allow each other to settle for anything less than what God intends for us to long for the most. It's in Him that our joy is found. It's in Him that the fullness of life is found. It's in the proclamation of Jesus Christ, dead, buried, and raised for our justification and for our life, that you and I have deep and abiding and lasting joy and freedom. May we never settle for anything less, and may we never allow each other to settle for anything less. I'm going to pray for us this morning, and then we're going to have a chance together as God's people to respond to God's word, and we're going to do it in a few ways. 
We're going to take two minutes to pray. And when I say pray, I mean you pray. We're going to be silent and allow you to deal with God and allow God to deal with you. Pray with someone next to you if you like. Deal with God right here, right now. Let go of that which you think you have to do in order for him to love you. Receive from him all that he's done for you and his son. And then after we take a couple of minutes to pray, we're going to respond as God's people for all who have tasted of his grace by faith in his son. We're going to receive communion together this morning, remembering the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins and for our life. And as we do it, we're proclaiming with our bodies our confidence in him and our comfort in knowing that it's in him that we're found. And we're going to sing and we're going to celebrate and then be sent out from here as his people. So let me pray for us and then we'll take time to reflect and respond. Father, we, we thank you that your word holds nothing back. Your word doesn't allow us to hide in any corners. It doesn't allow us to keep some things hidden away from your eyes, but in love, you expose the realities of, of who we are apart from you and our desperate need for you. And Lord, we ask that this morning you, by your Holy Spirit, would do the work in all of our hearts to create and to, to drive and to groove into our hearts the deepest longing that you have for us we would desire for you to be formed in us. We want nothing less. Help us to want nothing less. We ask this in the name of your Son. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.